If you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 955, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And as we've been seeing in these past several months as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, we see over and over again that the Corinthian church seemed to be trying to keep their feet in two different worlds. They had one foot in the Christian world, and they wanted to keep one foot in the culture. See, they were true Christians, true believers. They did really want to follow Christ. They really did want to be faithful to his teaching. But on the other hand, they were very much influenced by their non-Christian culture that was surrounding. They wanted to fit in with them as well. And as we've seen, this just doesn't work. You can't, you, you can't do this. It will lead you to compromise. It will lead to, lead to living a life that's really no different than the surrounding pagan culture. Well, in today's passage, Paul was very blunt with them. He tells them that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who act like unbelievers, those who are no different than unbelievers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a, this is a truth that we all need to hear. The, the modern-day evangelical church desperately needs to hear. See, the truth is, if a person has had a true and saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Zacchaeus did, they will be changed. If they've been regenerated, they will be changed. They will act differently than the world. And if there's no difference in a person who claims to be a believer and their unbelieving friends, there is no, uh, there, there is no assurance that this person is actually truly belong to Christ. And, it, and we really need to understand that. We, and we don't want to be giving this false hope of someone said a prayer at some point and they're acting no differently. So let's look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Lord, what amazing news. And such were some of us. Yes, each one of us were far from you. Each one of us wanted to have nothing to do with you. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray that you will take out our hearts of stone and you will replace them with hearts of flesh, that we will be soft to you, that we will hear from you. Father, I pray that you will give us ears to hear the word that you have to speak. Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will speak through me. You will be seen, you will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't normally talk about polity issues in the church, but I think this is an important thing to talk about. And many of you have heard of these two overtures that have passed by large margins at our denomination's General Assembly. And Nathan and I were there, and we both, both voted in favor of these overtures. And we had a presbytery meeting in September, and our presbytery uh, approved these overtures. And these overtures are 
they deal with a, a change in our book of church order, which our book of church order, along with the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, this is the constitution of the PCA. And it's, as you could think, a, a, a change in the constitution is a big deal. So the process requires it passing one general assembly, which it did, which we had in St. Louis last summer, then also being ratified by um, two-thirds of the 88 presbyteries in the PCA, and it's in the process of going through that now, and our presbytery has passed it, and one of these overtures has is, is, is got to two-thirds, the other's a little bit less, but there's still about 34 presbyteries to go, uh, so we still have a long way to go, and if it passes that, then next summer in Birmingham, General Assembly, if it passes by a majority there, then this will be a change. And you may be wondering, you know, why are these overtures so important? Why are they necessary that our denomination would change its constitution? Well, these two overtures, I really deal with the same issue. And it's an issue of the qualifications for men who are going to serve as officers in the PCA. So as pastors and ruling elders and deacons. And one of the overtures addresses the biblical standards for office, and the other lists the criteria that the presbyteries and the sessions will use uh, when evaluating the officers. And these overtures would amend the applicable BCO sections by basically adding the clause that states that prohibits the ordination of men who self-identify as gay Christians, same-sex attracted Christians, homosexual Christians, or the like. And here's the specific words from, this is the, um, this is the um, qualifications for a person who is to be an officer. It says, officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity, such as but not limited to, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of falling desires, such as but not limited to same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and the hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptation, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. And when our denomination was founded in 1973, these amendments would have seemed completely unnecessary. Remember, this is not addressing visitors to the church. This is not addressing regular attenders or even members. This is specifically talking about leaders, pastors, elders, deacons. And the idea that a pastor would profess an identity with something that scripture unambiguously condemns, that contradicts his his uh, new identity in Christ, this would have been unthinkable. You might as well have said a pastor can't profess to be an atheist Christian. And don't laugh, there are some denominations where they have ministers that can claim to be atheists. But it would make no sense to us when our denomination was founded. But the narrative has changed in our culture. The narrative has changed. And now a person's sexuality has been elevated to the most fundamental aspect of a person's identity, as a person's very being. And stating a biblical truth, such as marriage is between one man and one woman, or that there are only two genders, male and female, and we don't choose those genders. They are assigned by God, determined by genetics and biology. They're unchangeable. To say this in our current culture is considered hateful. To say that any sexual activity and desire toward anyone who is not your spouse, is sinful, is considered an attack at the core of a person's being. 
So the reason these overtures are needed at this time in the PCA is because there are people in the PCA, some of them are ordained pastors and elders, who have either brought in, who either bought into this cultural narrative that our sexuality is an unchangeable part of who we are, is a, is a part of our core identity. Or some of them may not themselves believe this, but they don't want the PCA to clearly articulate what the Bible articulates for fear of the consequences, for fear of losing cultural influence. And to be fair, many of those who oppose these overtures, very few of them will, will disagree with them on theological terms because they are clearly biblical. But many of these ministers, they minister in areas such as college campuses or in cities, Areas where such a clear statement would really be devastating to the ministry. If it got out that the PCA was homophobic or discriminatory, people would not want to have anything to do with them. So what, what they want is they don't want to lead with this. They want to leave the ambigu- ambiguity. They don't, they don't want us to, to be clearly stating what the Bible teaches so that they can get to know people, build relationships with them, start Bible studies with them, and eventually bring them up. I, I understand what they're saying, and, and their motive really is to remove the barrier so that they, so people can hear the gospel, so that people can be saved. This is a good motive. This is a good intention. But as the saying says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. See, the clarity of these overtures are essential because many in the evangelical church, many in the PCA, in attempts to minister to the culture, they have unwittingly adopted the false narrative of the culture. And my friends, doing so is deadly. Because in trying to make the gospel more palatable to our fallen culture, what we do is we inadvertently change the gospel itself. We change it at its most fundamental level. So the ideology opposed uh, to these amendments proclaims really a, a powerless gospel. A gospel that cannot overcome sin. It says that a person's sexual brokenness and it could be any sin for this matter, but this is a specific, specific sin, the sexual brokenness. They're saying this is more, a more fundamental part of our identity than our union with Christ. It, defi- it, it denies definitive and progressive sanctification. It denies that in Christ the power of sin is broken. And our most, our most basic identity is now that of a new creation in Christ. It trumps every other identity, our sexuality, our race, our, our gender, anything. Our most, basic, our most basic identity is a new creation in Christ. And I spent so much time talking about this in the sermon. Again, I don't usually talk about these things in sermons, about these overtures, because I think this is a current example of an error that has long plagued the church all the way back to the Corinthian church. And it's an error that's directly addressed by these verses that we're going to look at today. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that a gospel that doesn't change us doesn't save us. A gospel that doesn't change us doesn't save us. Take a look at verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, it's important to realize that what we are talking about here is a salvation issue. The words will not inherit the kingdom of God means these people will not go to heaven. It means they are not saved. It means they are lost. They are headed toward hell. I mean, there are many issues that are important in the Bible, but they are not salvation issues. We talk about 
um, you know, end times issues. There's different views. We talk about modes of baptism and whether we baptize infants or, or adults. We, we talk about, you know, Arminianism versus Reformed theology. Those are arguments among brothers. Those are arguments in the church. They are important, but they are not a salvation issue. This, my friends, this is a salvation issue. That's why this is so important. See, if we, if we tell people that they can make a, a decision for Christ, but we tell them that certain sins are off limits, they're, they're part of their identity, their, their union of Christ can't change them, what we're doing is we're giving them a false gospel. We're giving them a gospel that cannot save them. We, we're giving them false hope. We're telling them, you know, you're okay, you got fire insurance, you're not going to go to hell. But we're lying to them. And my friends, this is not loving. This is ultimately the most wicked and evil thing, most hateful thing we can do to anyone, is to give them false assurance when it's not true. Now, first of all, we need to understand that all are unrighteous. Romans 3.10 and other places in the Scripture make it clear. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. So in and of ourselves, not one of us is righteous. Not one of us has earned, has the merit, the, the kingdom of God. Not one of us can, can earn our way into heaven. The only way we can inherit the kingdom of God, and notice that it says inherit. You know, it doesn't say earn, it says inherit. Uh, what is an inheritance? An inheritance is a, is a free gift that you get when someone you're related to dies. It's based on a relationship. See, the money you inherit when your rich uncle dies is not money you earned. It was money that was earned by the rich uncle, and it's given to us as a free gift because of our relationship that we have with that uncle. We are his heir. So the only way you can inherit the kingdom of God is if we are righteous, not unrighteous. We must be righteous. So how can we be righteous when Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous? Well, the only way we can be righteous is righteous in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we are in Christ, we are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ himself, with whom we are united, is imputed to us. It is freely given to us. So that for those of us who are united to Christ, we then can inherit the kingdom of God. We will inherit the kingdom of God. And at the moment of our justification, that is when by faith alone we are united to Christ. We become a new creation in Christ. While we are declared, we are declared by God perfectly righteous in his sight. And if we were to die at that moment, we would definitely go to, hell, go to heaven. But the reality is, in and of ourselves, there's still much unrighteousness in us. We are, in and of ourselves, very much sinners. But here's the beautiful part. Here, here is the beautiful reality. We may be sinners and declared righteous, but we don't stay that way. At the very moment of our justification, when we are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, at that very moment, the power of sin over us has been broken. And for the first time in our lives, we are free from our slavery to sin. And at that very moment, at that very moment, we have the ability to obey God. We have the ability to please God, the ability to mortify our sins, that is, to put our sins to death. And we have the desire. We have the desire to die to sin, to live for Christ. This, my friends, is called sanctification. If we take a look in your bulletin, um, the Confession of Faith that we had from Westminster, Confession of Faith, chapter 13. Let's take a look at these words. It says, They who are are once effectually called and regenerated, that is, new believers, uh, uh, people who are born again, having a new heart, 
and a new spirit created with them are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by the word and spirits indwelling in them. So we have the Holy Spirit in them. And it says the domination of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And its several lusts or, or desires there are, are more and more weakened and mortified. Mortified means put to death, killed. And they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. That means we get more holy. We get more like Christ, more like, more like uh, uh, the image of God. And we are able to practice true holiness. It says, without which no man shall see the Lord. See, if this is not true, you are not saved. This has to be true for every single person. See, justification and sanctification are inseparably linked. You cannot have, the go- you cannot have a gospel that only justifies you. You're a fire insurance, but it doesn't, it doesn't sanctify you. See, a gospel that doesn't change us, a gospel that doesn't make us more righteous or more holy, is a false gospel. It's kind of like the, the country music Christianity. You ever see, hear the country music songs? It's the, the people who are out raising hell on Saturday night, getting drunk, running around with women, but they're in church on Sunday morning, hungover in church on Sunday morning. That kind of Christianity does not save us. A gospel that cannot change us cannot save us. And we are to be made more holy, more righteous, more like Christ, more to die to our sins, more to live for Christ. Any other gospel is a false gospel. A gospel that cannot save us. So that's our first point. Our second point is, after we profess faith in Christ, if we don't see an outward and progressive putting to death of our sin, a becoming more and more righteousness, we, we have no assurance that we are truly united to Christ. See, the false gospel is deceptive. And sadly, sadly, there are so many who are deceived. So many who think they are Christians think that they are going to heaven because they have said a prayer or they go to church or, or they've accepted Jesus into their heart. But they continue to indulge the same sinful desires to continue to claim the same fallen sinful identity as they did before they made the pro- profession of faith. My friends, Scripture gives us no assurance that people who do this are saved and neither should we, neither should the church. Take a look at the next part of verse 9 and verse 10. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, Paul is extremely clear here. There is no ambiguity whatsoever. He says, do not be deceived. You cannot be a Christian and be characterized, be identified by this sin, any sin. And the list here is, is, is just an illustration. It's not exhaustive. It's, it, it's probably, it, it gives a good illustration of some sins that are very common that the church tolerates. Sins that are embraced by those who are deceived into thinking that somehow they will inherit the kingdom of God. And we've discussed most of these sins listed in this in previous sermons uh, when I looked at uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5. And we also know that sexual immorality, and I've talked about this many times, porneia, basically it means any sexual activity outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. And it would it's a broad term. It would include adultery, which is listed here. It would include homosexuality, which is listed here. But I think Paul is it wants to be specific. He's, he's reiterating this. He's giving emphasis. Because these are probably sins that were, were more prevalent in the uh, Corinthian church. And these are sins that are very prevalent our day as well. 
And we need to understand that sin exists at different levels. There is an outward sin and there is an inward sin. And most Christians, and and actually many, probably even most non-Christians, really do not physically commit adultery. They're not physically unfaithful to their spouse. This is the outward sin. But remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you look lustfully at someone who's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery with this person in your heart. This is the inward sin. See, many of us, we're, we're okay on the outward sins, the inward sins that are difficult. You know, many Christians, they're, they're greedy in their hearts, but you don't notice it outward. They're not, they're not, they're not stealing. They're not acting dishonest. There are many people who, who might revile in their heart. They might have hatred in their heart, but they're able to cover it. They're able to, to hold their tongues. It doesn't come out. You don't see it. Now, of course, the outward display of these vices is much worse, much more sinful than the inward. And it's much worse to actually be unfaithful than it is to lust. It's much worse to actually abuse someone than to hate, to have hateful thoughts toward them. But the reality is both are sins. And the reality is both types must be killed, must be mortified. Now, while in this life, Christians will never be completely sinless. However, it is perfectly reasonable for all Christians to expect victory over the outward sins. I'll say it again. It's perfectly reasonable for us to expect victory over the outward sins. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never going to mess up. We're never going to fall into an outward sin. But this should be the rare exceptions. And truthfully, when you see people who do fall into the outward sins, it's because they're neglecting the means of grace. They're not coming in worship. They're not, they're not spending time in the Bible, spending time in prayer. And they've made themselves vulnerable to the evil one to, to pull them into an outward sin. But the truth is that we should not be characterized No Christian should be characterized by a life that is blatant, unrepentant, outward sin. If that is a person, there is no hope that that person, or there's no assurance, I should say, that that person is truly a believer. So this is the outward sin. But the inward sins are much more insidious. They will be a constant battle, and we will never completely be able to have total victory over these in this life. We're, we're, We're to mortify these inward sins, but they will always be a battle. We will always battle impure thoughts, selfish motives, sinful reactions. But this doesn't mean we can't make progress in our battle against these sins. We certainly can, and we should. But we need to understand that this will be a lifelong battle. And not until we are in glory will we be free from these these inward sins. We'll never reach a point in, in life when we can let down our guard against these sins. We always need to be to be battling these sins. And this truth is addressed in, in the second and third paragraph of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13. We read, we read the first paragraph. I'm going to read the second and third paragraph as well. It said, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. See, there's a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. See, we have this, this irreconcilable war in there. That's, that's, that's uh, paragraph two. Paragraph three says, In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
It means it's always going to be there. It's always going to be a battle. But we're going to improve in this battle. A lifelong battle in which we can expect progress. We won't have total victory. It won't be completely gone. That's until we get to glory. But we can expect, if we look back over years, we can see that we are dying more and more to sin. We are getting better. We still have a long way to go. Oftentimes, the better we get, or the, the Lord opens our eyes to see just how far we have to go. But we are making progress. And here's a warning sign in our spiritual life. If you're battling sin, this is good. This is a good thing. But if you make your peace with it, if you identify with it, then you are in serious danger. And again, this is why the PCA overtures are so, much, are so needed. Because there is so much pressure to make peace with certain sins. To say that they, these sins are part of our identity. To say that I will put to death the outward expression of the sin, but I will not touch the inward expression. That's off limits. That can never change. Well, experience and scripture tells us this is an untenable position. So you can't prohibit the outward expression and then just foster the inward, uh, the inward expression of this sin. You can't deny the sinfulness of the fallen and disordered uh, desires. It, it, it just doesn't work. It's eventually going to come out. You can't always be angry, always be angry, but say I'm going to be smiling. Eventually it's going to come out. It's going to come out in your words or your actions. Sin always grows. Sin always propagates. It always expands. And there's no neutrality with respect to sin. See, we are either putting sin to death or sin is seeking to put us to death. There is no, there is no making peace with it. Some people may, may ask with respect to these overtures. They can say, well, there's a lot of sins listed in these two verses. Why do these overtures specifically address this one sin, the sin of homosexuality or, or same-sex desires? Well, the answer to this is, is really twofold. First is that if you look at the actual words of the overture, they are not limited to, to this one issue. I'm going to read the, the proposed changes to BCO uh, 24.4, which is how you would examine a, a teaching elder or pastor. And it says, in the examination of the candidate's personal character, the presbytery shall give specific attention to potentially notorious concerns, such as, but not limited to, relational sins, sexual immorality, including homosexuality, child sexual abuse, fornication and pornography, and then it goes on, addictions, abusive behavior, racism, financial mismanagement, Careful attention must be given to his practical struggle against sinful actions, as well as, as persistent sinful desires. And while imperfection will remain, he must not be known by reputation or self-profession according to the remaining sinfulness, but rather by the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ. So it's basically, there are other sins uh, listed here. This is not the only one. Other sins are definitely included. But the reality is there really is no pressure, at least now. There's no pressure to ordain non-practicing adulterers or non-practicing revilers or, uh, or idolaters or thieves or drunkards or swindlers. That's not, that's not something we're seeing. But there is a clear call by some in our denomination to ordain non-practicing gay Christians. And so we didn't choose this fight, to fight against this specific sin. This is the point of attack. And to, oh, this overture is simply react, reacting to the point where the Christian faith, where orthodoxy is currently under attack by our culture. And this question may be honest by some, 
when it's asked by some, but there are many who this question is really a smokescreen. It gives them a chance really to virtue signal with the culture. For some people, the question is, is dishonest. It deflects from the area where the church is under attack. And what they want to do is they want to focus on sin that everyone recognizes as a sin. And no one is advocating for a person identifying with the sin to be in leadership of the denomination. They basically want to focus on something and saying it's a problem that is not a problem. And these people, they, they want to appear to be bravely standing on the truth when it's a truth that no one disagrees with, a truth that no one is opposing. And this bravery will cost nothing. And it's dishonest and it's really cowardice. And Martin Luther addressed this well when he said, he said, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every point of the truth of God, except that little point in which the world and the devil are at this very moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be proclaiming Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield beside is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So that's what many people are doing. And my friends, the normalization of homosexuality is the point where scripture is currently being under attack. It wasn't always this way. There were other things if you look back in church history, but our moment in time, this is where the attack is. This is where the world and the devil are currently attacking Christian orthodoxy. And there will be pressure on every single one of us in this room if we stand against this. I just read yesterday about a pastor in Finland who is facing five years in jail because he is just articulating what the Bible said. He's just saying, this is the reason why we are opposed to same-sex marriage, why we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. They are putting him on trial, and he can spend five years in prison for having that opinion. That is where things are going. And each one of us, there's going to be pressure on us as individuals, as ministries. You see ministries folding one after another, and also pressure on the churches to compromise in this issue. And this is where we must stand. So, so far we've seen that the gospel, that doesn't change, doesn't save. And if we profess a faith, but we don't see an outward progress in our fight against sin, there's no assurance that we truly are saved. The last point that we see here, point three, is true Christians will be sanctified, will die to their sin. And the most beautiful words, I think, in this passage come in verse 11. See, after Paul gives this list of, uh, of vices that give evidence that a person is not a believer, Paul then says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And such were some of you, but no more. You are no longer sexually immoral. You are no, you, you once were, but not anymore. You're no longer idolaters, no longer I, uh, adulterers. You once were, but Christ has set you free. Praise God. The gospel works. God can and does change us. And here is the evidence. Here is the evidence. He says, look at yourselves. You once were thieves. You once were greedy. You once were drunkards. You once were revilers. You once were swindlers. But now, Now you have been washed by the blood of Christ. You have been sanctified. You have been justified by the name of Christ. You have been made clean by the Holy Spirit. You are now beloved and obedient children of God. You will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the cleansing and power and sanctifying power of the gospel. 
for all who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, are new creations in Christ. This is the gospel. Praise God. And here's the reason why these overtures are so needed in the PCA. Because there are some, and thankfully it's a minority, but it's still a, a good number, who deny the explicit teaching of this verse. And such were some of you. Men and women who practice and identify as homosexuals, but no more. This is no longer your identity. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are a child of God. You are no longer enslaved by your sin. You have been set free in Christ. You are no longer defiled by your sin. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the Father. This is the power of the Son. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in every single believer. And if there are any here, any who could hear my voice either on the live stream or here or, or listen to this 10 years from now on sermon audio, if you are not a believer, it doesn't matter what your sins are. The only thing to do is to come to Christ. Receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. There is no sin so large that it cannot be forgiven in Christ. And there is no sin so small that doesn't, doesn't need forgiveness through Christ. And when you come to Christ, your sins will be instantaneously removed because they are punished in Christ on the cross. And you are given the free gift of eternal life. His righteousness is given to us, is imputed to us. And in Christ, you will be set free from the power of sin. You will be given the ability to more and more to put that sin to death. And for those of you who are in Christ, and I don't know if anyone here struggles with the sin of same-sex desires, but whatever sin, each one of us has some sin that we struggle with. But if we are in Christ, that sin does not define us. I preached last Sunday evening about a sin that I struggle with, of, of, of ungodly anger. But that sin does not define me. Our identity is first and foremost in Christ. And if we are not, we are not defined by our sin. We are not a, a homosexual. We are not an alcoholic. We are not a liar, a cheat, an adulterer, or someone who is sexually immoral, or any other label you want to put on it. An angry Christian. We once were, but not anymore. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. We are beloved children of God. My friends, this is our identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that it's so easy to buy into the narrative of the culture. It's so easy to buy into identifying with our sins because it's easier. It's easier. If we identify with them, we don't have to fight against them. But that is not an option for Christians. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been purified. We are new creations in Christ. And as such, we are to act. The only model for us is Christ. He is our model. And anything that is different than that must be put to death. We must continue fight against our sins. And, and, and we don't want to do that. It is difficult. But Father, we have the power to do that. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that that Spirit will enact us, that we will not make a peace with any sin, any sin, whatever it is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.